Which one's the best crypto asset? Well, Bitcoin's the best crypto asset. Okay. What's the second best? There is no second best. There is no second best crypto asset. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Why Bitcoin Show. I'm your host, Dale Warburton. It's a weekly podcast on why Bitcoin matters and what makes it completely different to all other cryptocurrencies. If you're interested in Bitcoin and you'd like to distill crypto fact from fiction, you've come to the right place. All right, all right, all right. So today I have got Andy Pattinson from the Bitcoin Advisor. Welcome to the show, Andy. Thanks, Dale. Thanks for having me. Really excited to have a chat with you today. Yeah, me too. And uh, I sometimes like to start by sharing a little story about how like, I first remember you and my first engagement with you. Um, it was at Murrah. I listened to your impassioned presentation on self-managed supers and thought to myself, geez, man, I've got to do something about this. So yeah, we'll get into that. And then afterwards, we were out in that sort of beer garden area and you know, because I'm a South African, I was like spotting all the different tables in a, in a way. I was kind of like, oh, there's the Brisbane crowd and there's the Sydney crowd. And I was kind of like a butterfly walking from table to table, loving it. And eventually I found myself in the, the Sydney table and I was chatting along there. And I just heard you having a really intense discussion around the challenges of parenthood. And I was just like, I love how Bitcoiners like go straight to the core. They have real conversations. And I was like, yeah, this this guy's yeah. like he he's um he was outlining some of your challenges and and things like that and being a parent and you know I'm not a parent I thought you know I just it's one of the stories that I used in in, in a later article um, and I didn't name you obviously but um yeah so anyway that was my first sort of touch point with you but um, stoked to chat today just from a background perspective I always like to give the listeners a little bit of an overview of sort of who who's on the other end of the mic so if you could just just give us a, a high level overview of kind of who you are and your professional background or give us as little or as much information as you're comfortable with. Sure, no worries. So I'm a POM originally from Nottingham in the UK, spent about 10 years in London, a few years in Melbourne, went back to London for a little bit. And then I've been in Australia for about 15 years now. So I, I tend to professionally kind of think of my career in a number of different epochs. And the first 15 years was IT roles doing you know, project management, program management, head of IT style roles. I worked for some really amazing companies during that time. I was kind of lucky. I did computing at university and uh, out the back of that, joined some really great organizations. I worked for uh, buy.com in the US and then johnlewis.com in the UK. And uh, I was head of IT at asos.com and worked at Avis and a bunch of others. So I had quite a varied kind of IT career in the UK and and came over to Australia for a couple of years on a on a year off and then went back and, and did a few more years. And then really the last 15 years, I've been doing IT sales. So I kind of flipped from being the customer to selling to the customer. And it's not generally a kind of common path to go from uh, head of IT to a sales director. Uh, it's a bit unusual, but I, I actually found in myself that I'd been selling to you know the C-suite for years as the head of IT, trying to pitch different projects and uh, things that we needed to do. So I got very kind of familiar to pitching to the CEO and the CMO and so on. So actually, I found it quite a natural progression to then go into IT sales. Um, so I spent the last 15 years selling Salesforce implementation services for all sorts of different organizations. And really, for me, that's quite a consultative sell. So you're 
going into all these big companies and financial services institutions and banks and you know insurance companies and you name it and you have to go in and learn how they operate and work out where you can add value and where your products can add value and how you help them get better at what they do and there's a lot of commonality between businesses but working across you know, a huge number of different verticals it's always fascinating to see how different organizations operate and what they have in common and how they're different and what you know, systems and processes are, uh, are regular and which ones are irregular and how you can help them as a consultant, you know, improve their organization and deliver better outcomes across the board. So it's uh, it's been a fascinating time doing that. And then uh, obviously fell down the Bitcoin rabbit hole uh, in about 2020 and uh, now feel like I'm kind of entering the third epoch of my career and getting into Bitcoin. And uh, that started, as you mentioned, talking about self-managed super and how to get uh, your self-managed or well, how to get your superannuation funds into uh, a self-managed super and Bitcoin, kind of a bit of a story around that. And that's how I met Peter Dunworth. And from there, we've gone on to create the Bitcoin advisor. And for the last few months, that's been accelerating and has been you know, a wild amount of fun. So I, I still have my fiat job and still love doing that. But at the same time, um, I've now kind of transitioned into a day a week doing the Bitcoin advisor and spend my days talking to Bitcoiners, which is fabulous. You said it, hey, it's absolutely fabulous. No, I love it. Um, I said fabulous because it's a joke. It's an inside joke between my wife and I. Anyway, um, yes, I think there's nothing better than talking with Bitcoiners and it must be incredibly fulfilling. And I find what you said there about the consultative nature of selling software like Salesforce, because it's a huge part of an organization in the sense that they're not going to make these switches very lightly. And so you've got to kind of go in, dig a little, understand their needs, and perhaps you're going to apply a lot of these skills now that you've learned over the last 15 or however many years in the Bitcoin advisor context, which we can dig into a little bit deeper so much like you, uh, I'm also a class of twenty two of twenty. Uh, so what was it about you know twenty twenty that sort of helped you kind of understand Bitcoin? Like um, yeah, what what's the orange pull story? Sure, I guess COVID related in terms of all of a sudden you're not in the office anymore. Nobody, you know, particularly in the line of business we were in, selling consulting services to large organizations. When the lockdown started happening. We were all like, oh, my God, how are we going to sell this stuff to customers remotely? Like I was constantly on planes, flying up and down to Melbourne, flying you know, all over the world, doing you know, all over the region, doing sales. You know, you wouldn't be a week go by where I wouldn't be on a plane going somewhere and flying back and you know, juggling life and doing all of that. Uh, and then all of a sudden you're in lockdown and you've got time on your hands where you're not traveling. And I started, you know wanting to understand more about money and investing and started getting you know worried about my future and everything else and my kids future so fell down the rabbit hole rather interestingly Raul Powell was doing reasonably well back then and uh, before he he started shitcoining and uh, doing all of that stuff but back then he had a very compelling set of arguments at a macro level about what was happening they just started the Real Vision daily uh, updates, which were really fascinating to me at the time, because I, you know, in reflection, didn't really understand money, didn't really understand hard assets, didn't understand anything really. So um, really fell down that rabbit hole very quickly. So I'll, I'll credit Raul with orange pilling me, even though, you know, everything's gone very sideways for him uh, over the last year or two. So that's kind of where it came from. But I spent a, spent a lot of time just getting very interested in Bitcoin and understanding it and just started buying a little bit and then buying a little bit more and uh, then selling everything else I had and buying more and then ended up looking at this pot of money in my superannuation and I'm going, well, I want more Bitcoin. So how do I get it from here to there? 
Um, so I contacted my superannuation fund at the time, Australian Super, and uh, and said to them, look, I'd, I'd really love to get exposure to this asset. How, how can I do that? And I was hit with a wall of FUD of all the usual nonsense that uneducated uh, normies, you know, kind of throw at you or the traditional finance system throws at you. So, you know, terrorism and Ponzi and, you know, risky and volatile and, you know, blah, blah, blah. We're never doing it. So uh, within 24 hours, I'd worked out how to do it and kicked off the process of setting up a self-managed super fund. And it took a you know, couple of months to get kind of through that process. And uh, eventually the funds were in my self-managed super bank account and very quickly turned into self-custody Bitcoin. And that was, you know, kind of a, a really interesting process for me. So kind of how I ended up meeting Pete, it was not long before Murarundi and I'd agreed to speak at the Bush Bash and tell that story of what I'd gone through. And I thought in in addition to that, I wanted a resource available that people could you know, call on. Uh, I'm not giving anyone a financial advice or telling them what to do. I'm just telling them my story of what I did and how I did it. Uh, so I put bitcoinsuper.io together and kind of share that with the world. And that got Pete and I talking and uh, kind of the Bitcoin advisor is uh, is the next step on from that. Brilliant. You know, like it, this Raul Powell fella, he's popped up in a few, I mean, I've had, a, I've had maybe, I'm not sure what number interview this is there, Andy, but I think he's been at least mentioned three times. Um, and I also credit him. I found him to be highly credible. And at the time, obviously things have changed. But um, yeah, it's it's quite incredible. And it does make you think that, I wonder who the actors of today that we sort of would look at and say, oh, you know, this person's a bit of a grift or whatnot. Are they perhaps bringing in new Bitcoin? It's like they might not meet our standards in terms of what we think a true blue Bitcoin should be. But, you know, people might have said the same thing about Ralph, but like he, I mean, I, I know at least like five people then that, you know, bought Bitcoin because of him. I, I think it's true. I mean, the beauty of the Bitcoin advisor, I get to talk to Bitcoiners every day and they all have their own origin story and they all have their own description of how they found Bitcoin and who's influenced them and, and so on. I think one person mentioned Crypto Casey was uh, was really good for them and she'd made like loads of noise. I haven't heard of her. I, I haven't looked into her, but I guess by the title, she probably does more than just Bitcoin. And we focus very closely and heavily on Bitcoin only. And uh, convince everyone else why anything else is a bad idea or at least a gamble. And if you want to gamble, go gamble. But um, if you want to invest or save for the long term, then then Bitcoin's the right vehicle for that. So you know, everyone has different people that influence them and bring them in from the people that I talk to. And there are others as well. But I, I guess it's changing, right? It's very different now from how it was in 2020. And I'm sure very different from 2017 and 2013 and, and so on. Each cycle has its own kind of actors and it, its own, you know, uh, people that, you know, famous people or famous uh, Bitcoiners and so on. I reckon this cycle is different because of a lot of the washout of FTX and Duquan and, you know, all the troubles Binance are having and now uh, BlackRock coming into the scene as well. Like it's just a very, it's quite a different narrative. And of mm. course, post COVID, I think, Everyone's probably a little bit more skeptical of institutions like central banks and everything else because of such a mess they've made of everything. There's a it feels like there's a broader skepticism, you know, in the broader audience. So, you know, perhaps I'm talking to more people about it, but that's yeah. definitely the feeling that I get. And therefore, you know, this cycle, who who do you listen to? I mean, Preston Pish is always a go to. Jeff Booth is always a go to. 
it's great like you know relatively new faces like larry lapada fabulous you know he's he's clearly a big gold bug advocate but he's also a massive bitcoiner and you know really understands the difference between the two and the place that both have and is vehemently and adamantly a bitcoin only uh, person from you know a crypto perspective and hopefully all of that kind of adds up that maybe there'll be less shitcoining in this cycle because everyone's seen what a mess it's been previously that is my sincere hope <laughs> and the, although I, I i have this feeling that human nature being what it is i suspect there i mean there's kind of two things that could happen the one in my mind is that we will never see another so-called crypto bull run and i'm talking about everything other than bitcoin because of all for all the reasons that you've highlighted i mean just all the all the liquidations, all the Ponzi's, all the fraud, all the all the silliness and the rug pulls and the just just pure stupidity. I describe it as. Um, however, there will always be grifters, and they're going to be grifters yeah. on the fringe who play who use Bitcoin during the bear to sort of elevate their brand. Um, and you know, I, I'm happy to kind of name like the one person I look at and I'm like, God, what a grifter! But very good is Layla Hepburn, and you know, she's now got this. She's got an, a, a, a like a reality show where it's like some sort of crypto reality show where you can go and pitch your TV show to her and a bunch of other VCs. And you think it to yourself like, and she's also like, you know, she she bangs on all about all the right things in terms of what we think is good in terms of from Bitcoin's perspective, you know, freedom and you know, anti-central banks and blah, blah, blah. But then has got the show. So Infinity scamming. Yeah. And so it's like, so I think there's going to be more. And so like there's people like her um, and I think there'll be more grifters on the, on the fringe, but I do hope that a lot of the wind has been sucked out of it. Um, and yeah, but I, I, yeah, I certainly, I don't hold my breath because I, I, people... I think the, maybe the other really fascinating dimension, which has become apparent. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of rational root and the work that uh, he does and, and puts out and love the kind of spiral charts, my favorite chart in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a, the other one that he put out recently was declining balance of Bitcoin or available Bitcoin. So up until the last epoch, um, you know, the balance of available Bitcoin is increasing. And since the last epoch, it's been declining. Uh, and that's clearly compressing available Bitcoin. And therefore, it should have a you know an, an expansive impact on the upside volatility of price. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I, I look at that and I think that in conjunction with Michael Saylor and the correct accounting method for Bitcoin, which is coming close to passing legislation or, or at least being the recommended method for um, accounting for Bitcoin, uh, fair value Bitcoin, that could potentially open the floodgates to a lot more uh, institutions buying into Bitcoin. So the, the combination of that declining available supply and the floodgates opening for corporates buying Bitcoin could well override any of the noise around altcoins and you know potential upside there because Bitcoin could well have uh, a much more explosive blow off top than it's perhaps muted blow off top from the last cycle where all of the um, paper Bitcoin and uh, FTX and everything else, I think, caused quite a suppression in, in price. And then I think, you know, just the sheer human nature of all of that could well suppress the altcoin side of things because Bitcoin is has the potential to be so explosive in that, in that scenario, I think. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good thesis. And then you layer in also the ETFs, which are on the horizon. And it might take a little yep. bit of time to get proved and that sort of thing. But if you imagine, yeah, declining sort of available supply and uh, increased let's call it clarity around the accounting. And for those of uh, for those listeners who aren't necessarily familiar with it, as I understood it, effectively, 
you had to write down your Bitcoin every quarter if you're a public company and you couldn't actually record the gains, but you had to record it as some sort of uh, impairment. And so Sailor yeah, was, was down. Neg- it was a ratchet loss, right? It was cra- It's crazy. Like it becomes worth less and less over time rather than you being able to state the value of it at any particular quarter. Yes, exactly. Which it, it feels kind of irrational. So uh, yeah, it's good news that, that that is potentially changing. I think... Just to sort of finally put a sort of nail on the on the uh, crypto side of things, uh, given this is the Why Bitcoin show, and part of my ambition is to help distill the fact from fiction. I like to get everyone's take on what really the distinction is between crypto and uh, Bitcoin in their eyes, and um, perhaps why you are focusing so heavily on Bitcoin and nothing else. Look, I, I really consider Bitcoin as my savings account. I've, I've worked hard across my career. I've saved money as best I can, perhaps more effectively since I discovered Bitcoin than ever previously. I was certainly a lot more frivolous prior to Bitcoin with uh, with any money that I had. And um, so I consider Bitcoin my savings account. You know, I've worked hard for that. I'm saving my time and energy in Bitcoin. I'm DCAing every week and putting money away for my future. Uh, obviously moved uh, all of my superannuation into Bitcoin 100% and every compulsory contribution that I get from my employers goes um, straight into Bitcoin. So I'm, I'm using it as a long-term savings account. And I think you know, being good friends with Peter and working with Peter, uh, he has some fabulous price predictions and, and other things you know, that make you think that it's a uh, certainly a very viable method for saving value. I look at the alternatives and alternative coins and the speculative nature, and they all have a very similar chart profile, which is shoot to the moon and then drop to the floor. And it's a classic pump and dump in the vast majority of scenarios. I, I see it as gambling. If you can get in early and sell at the top, then, you know, bully for you. You know, you might as well do that if you want to gamble or you can pop down to the casino and drop some money on the roulette table and hope for the best. But neither of those methods are risk managed uh, methods for saving money. They're, they're methods for gambling and you can get lucky and win uh, or you can get unlucky and lose. And it's likely that the latter is is more common. So for me, people are into altcoins and gambling, then go crazy. But um, for me, I'm in this for the long-term savings and uh, generational wealth and the ability to look after my kids and retire early. I think one of the things I often talk about with the self-managed super and Bitcoin, uh, it could well be the difference between a retirement and not. Mm, yes. Uh, just sort of to... to... Zoom in a bit on that. So you're saying like you look at it as gambling and frankly, I do too. Um, I've got my own personal reasons, but could you maybe just ex- expand that a little, a little bit for people who might say, look, um, that's exactly what a Bitcoiner would say. Uh, and, you know, let's unpack that. Um, in, in what sense is crypto gambling in your mind? Well, I, I mean, it's all about counterparty for me. With Bitcoin, there's no counterparty. You're, you save your money in Bitcoin, you self-custody the Bitcoin. In that self-custody scenario, there is no counterparty risk. All the risk is on me. I've invested my money in Bitcoin. I am looking after that Bitcoin. It's mine. If I invest into a crypto, there are counterparties at play. There are people that run those coins. There are people who decide on the issuance of those coins. There are market manipulations that we can't possibly understand that are going on all over the place. There's paper values of it. There are pre-mines of it. You know, you look at Ethereum and how much they pre-mined of that. They, they've they moved from proof of work to proof of stake. The Ethereum Foundation dumps coins whenever it needs to refund itself. It, it's a completely manipulated market. So you're gambling because you're taking a risk that the time that you get in, 
and whatever manipulation they perform during that time and the time that you get out somewhere in the middle, you hopefully make money and don't lose money. That to me is very simple gambling. I much prefer the lack of counterparty risk and knowing that I self-custody my own money and nobody can do anything about that. It's under my control. Amen. Yes, exactly. It's like uh, the rules are clear. Everyone knows the rules of the road with uh, with Bitcoin and uh, yeah, uh, with with all these other projects, you you've really you're dealing with you're dealing with um, rules made by humans that are constantly changing, based on a set of criteria that you don't have any insight into. And yeah, um, to me, they're not necessarily they're not inherently fair. The other thing that I've actually started digging into, and I, I'm surprised I didn't actually go down this path before, is all of the CBDCs that are inevitably going to happen are being built on Ethereum too. So if you're a fan of Ethereum, you're also a fan of uh, surveillance technology, which to me, again, that doesn't it doesn't feel like you'll be on the right side of history in terms of the way that the tide is moving. I mean, you were mentioning earlier, you've, you, you sensed there was some sort of shift. And I'm also sensing that shift, a cultural shift, a push back against... Um, woke ideology uh, against some of the extreme politics that have been shoved down our throats some of the tyranny we've seen like all sorts of uh, what they've described as i'm putting in inverted commas here your old far right parties that are increasingly gaining momentum around the world and um yeah it, it also just strikes me as like if you care about freedom and fairness it just i don't know how you can support those type of organizations which to me are pretty much companies but and touching on the Ethereum and CBDC thing as well, I've spent 25, 30 years of my career in and around software engineering and implementing systems and services and everything else. And I look at something like Ethereum and there's that famous um, flow diagram of the different you know, stages of Ethereum as they roll out since they moved to proof of stake. I look at that and it's just horrendously complicated. And you know, you can do all your own research on Ethereum and see how complicated it is and how many times they've refactored this and changed the rules for that and changed the issuance for this and changed the way this thing works and that thing works and staking works and doesn't work and they didn't even implement the ability to unstake your ethereum until after they'd moved to proof of stake like there's all sorts of craziness there now a golden rule throughout my my entire career with everything software related and implementation is keep it as simple as possible and no more than that. Yes. The, the simpler something is, the more elegant it is, and the more reliable it is, the easier it is to maintain, the more robust it is as a solution, the easier it is to test, and the easier it is to enhance, and the more stable it acts as a system. So I look at something like Ethereum, and I wouldn't trust my money with it under any circumstances. I don't trust that it's a stable thing. And you've seen it fall over time and again. You know, it wasn't all that long ago there was instability in, in Ethereum. Now, couple that to a government's general inability to deliver any kind of system or solution with any kind of you know, sensible time frame or on budget or to spec uh, in any way, shape or form. You're building a very shaky system on top of a very shaky system that is doomed to being like an absolute disaster. So almost counterintuitively, I'm glad they're building CBDCs on Ethereum because it's all going to end up in a pile of mess. Like it's not going to work because Ethereum doesn't work and governments certainly aren't very good at doing IT. So the sum of those two things together 
hopefully dooms CBDCs to pretty catastrophic failure. Wow. Yeah, that is great. I mean, there's a quote that you, maybe you know it, but there's some, it's in, because I worked in software for a couple of years myself, and there's a quote along the lines of, isn't it about like something, the, the more complex a system, the more prone it is to breaking, but complexity is like the, the enemy of, was it, was it execution or you've got something maybe i don't know what the, the, i think there's a industry quote along those lines and everything was around building the most as you say uh, simple reliable systems and not trying to sort of over complicate and over engineer things and uh, you know even in the context of building websites you really want to build them in a way with a code it's really clean so that anybody can come in later and understand what's potting but if you've got some guy who thinks he's a genius and does all these little tricks and everything from day dot somebody who comes and looks at it later and goes my god what a mess you've created so that's kind of my sense too just from a tech technological perspective and Ethereum is whatever Vitalik and the boys uh, decide um, because they are the ones who uh, yeah, run the rules. And yeah, the, the sort of most egregious claim they make is that they're decentralized because as I, I had a conversation with Jeff Yu recently from Monochrome and he was just saying like, you know, when people talk about decentralization on, on, on a spectrum, it's a bit silly because the idea is that you're either decentralizing or not. You know, you, you, you can't yeah, say, binary. well, yeah, I mean, and so, you know, from my perspective, like if you need to have 32 ETH to run a node, I mean, that's hardly empowering to the average person. So it means that everyone's going to be relying on these big servers or big users. And a lot of people know that I get particularly pissed off about <laughs> crypto because I worked in and I saw all the incentives and I thought, oh my God, it's it's everything I thought, but even worse. So yeah, because I had a layer of woken. So that's another story. But um, let's shift away from crypto. This is a Bitcoin show and I'm fed up from crypto. I'm even getting I'm even getting hotter on the collar thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, Bitcoin advisor, you sort of touched on earlier about like how you uh, first got in touch with Pete Dunworth and and sort of how that sort of that worked from you, know, you did a, uh, you had a Bitcoin super.io, just sort of outlining your journey and saying, this is how I did it. It's on financial advice, but it's pretty simple. These are the options. And yeah, talk to us a little bit about Bitcoin advisor as a business and what are your different offerings? And then we can unpack those and uh, go a little bit sure. in greater detail. So the reason we kind of met was we, I've been talking about Bitcoin Super and the custody model that I arrived at for making sure that those funds were safe and secure because it's a, a not insubstantial amount of money, your superannuation. I mean, I think the the median amount that a, a male in Australia has is something like $164,000. So it's it's not an insubstantial amount and there's quite a broad range in that as well. So Sorry, um, can I interrupt I you there? What, make... what, um, what age is that male? Just out of interest. That, that's across the male working age population. So clearly there's a, a broad range between 18 years old and uh, 67 years okay. old, the retirement age. Uh, but the median amount across that cohort is about 164 grand. Okay, so cool. you can expect a broad range in that. But as with uh, the sixth wonder of the world being compound interest, clearly the older you are, likely the higher your super balance is. Anyway, long story short, I had to work out for myself the best way of custodying that Bitcoin securely and ended up catching up with Peter just before the bush bash in November last year. And we got to talking about custody and the model. And it was a nice validation that what I'd come up with was the same 
custody model that Peter was deploying for um, his multifamily offices uh, and for all of those families. And so we have a very similar model that we'd considered and, and had executed. And that kind of got us to talking. And one thing and another, a few months ago, um, we decided to expand on what Peter does with NetWorth Advisors and create the Bitcoin Advisor, uh, which really does primarily three things. Uh, the first is collaborative custody, and we can delve into that model in a minute to help ensure that clients' funds are secured safely and securely, and there's uh, significant redundancy in that model for their peace of mind. We then layer in uh, estate planning, which again is a, a quite an expansive topic we can talk about, which really, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners uh, work very hard to accumulate their stack, but a lot of Bitcoiners also haven't considered what happens if I get hit by a bus tomorrow. And if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, what happens to your Bitcoin? Does your spouse understand how to access it? Uh, do your beneficiaries understand how to get to it? Do they know where your key is? Do they know where your seed phrases are? Do they know how the custody works? Will that uh, Bitcoin end up as a donation to the network? Or do you actually want your Bitcoin to pass down to your beneficiaries? And my my inclination and all the conversations I have, everybody wants their Bitcoin to be uh, generational wealth and, and an inheritance for their heirs. Uh, I've only really heard Michael Saylor say that he's going to donate his personal Bitcoin to the network. But uh, Pete and my favorite phrase is you do you uh, and Michael can do Michael. So if that's what he wants to do, then great. And then really the third part is um, beneficiary education or Bitcoin education in general. We find it's really important that your beneficiaries, whether it's your spouse or your children, um, at least understand the nature of Bitcoin what it is, why the you know, primary uh, purchaser of Bitcoin is doing what they're doing. It acts as a validation for their extended family as well to understand why they're saving in Bitcoin and what they're doing with it. And then to a degree, understanding the custody model and what to do in the event that something unfortunate happens, either they lose their key or their seed phrase or something more tragic happens. Uh, we then put all of the framework in place to make sure that not only legally does everything pass effectively, but also physically, particularly with Bitcoin being a bearer asset, uh, you obviously don't want to lose the Bitcoin. So uh, we have protocols in place that uh, help families um, do that. And over the number of years since 2016 that Peter's been doing this, he's taken a number of families through that process. Uh, so one of the things we're perhaps most proud of is we've never lost the SAT. And we think that you know is the lowest bar you can have. We have to be perfect. And any less than that is un unsatisfactory. So uh, we're very proud we've never lost a SAT and that the model supports ensuring that will continue. Okay, great. Okay, so there's a lot there. So let's start off with custody because custody is... As far as I can tell, it's there. There are no solutions. The only trade-offs here, yeah, that, that's that's quite a common phrase we we hear in Bitcoin uh, very often. Yeah, the the sell, and I guess you could say the puritanical Bitcoiner would always say, like, I don't trust anybody else outside of my outside of me and my direct family, and I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not inclined to give it to the likes of Casa or Unchained or even you know the Bitcoin advisor, however trustworthy you folks might yeah. be. Then there probably are people who don't necessarily trust themselves or don't necessarily trust their family that they could do the right thing. And also perhaps not as adversarial minded, if you like, and are more trusting by nature and also want that additional security. What has been your experience when you're engaging with different Bitcoiners on that particular issue? I mean, how have you addressed that, uh, the, the the various trade-offs? And are you getting any pushback from like Bitcoiners, uh, proper Bitcoiners and saying like, hey, I don't want to give anyone my keys? Absolutely. And 
you know, everyone is on that broad spectrum of uh, level of understanding of how custody works and the importance of self-custody and the trade-offs. So like you say, there's no perfect solution for custody and Bitcoin. There are only trade-offs. So with collaborative custody, it's it's kind of a, it's a journey of understanding from the worst possible scenario is leaving your coins on an exchange. It, it's lazy and it's risky and you're exposed to all sorts of counterparty risk that you know, is well documented on lots of podcasts and discussions. So whatever you do, our primary concern is get your coins off the exchange. So then usually the next step for an individual is single SIG and moving it to a hardware wallet. Now I find one of one of the epiphanies I've had along the way and the thing that was never explained to me that I had to work out for myself but have found immensely valuable is to understand that your coins never leave the blockchain when you have a single SIG set up. The coins are still on the blockchain, in the in the internet, on the Bitcoin blockchain, so that everywhere and nowhere, all at the same time, they are not on the physical hardware wallet. Mm. So when you <laughs> when you create a ledger account or a Trezor account or a cold card account and set up the wallet with that device, you're creating a new wallet on the blockchain and you can move your coins into that wallet, but you are not moving the coins from the exchange onto that device. That device is just a key. And that key signs a sending transaction. And once I, once I understood that for myself, I felt an awful lot more comfortable moving my coins off an exchange uh, into a hardware wallet because it's not on that device. So a lot of people carry a lot of paranoia of losing that device or the seed phrase. So they, uh, they don't sleep at night. They get really concerned about it because they don't necessarily understand that you know, that device is replaceable if you have your seed phrases and if it breaks, you can recreate it using your seed phrase. And if you put your seed phrase in a few different places or keep it safe and understand the importance of that seed phrase, then you know, you're a lot better off than leaving your coins exposed to counterparty risk on an exchange. So then the next generation on from there for me was to understand multi-sig and that reduces your dependence on any one key particularly. So uh, I use Unchained myself when I was learning this and Unchained holds a key and I hold two keys. And it takes two of those three keys to sign a sending transaction. So I've got redundancy in the two keys. So if one of my keys breaks and I lose a seed phrase, it doesn't matter because I can work with Unchained to move my funds if I need to. And I can swap out that dead key, for example. The next generation on from that or the next iteration on from that uh, is what we do with collaborative custody. So in the scenario, you become a client of the Bitcoin advisor. Uh, Dale holds a key. Bitcoin Advisor holds a key and Unchained Capital holds a key. And in that scenario, you have two-factor authentication on the Unchained account. So you have self-custody and security on that wallet. So only you can log in to create a sending transaction because it's under two-factor authentication. They also have video security on there where when you set your account up, you can have a minimum tolerance for sending transactions that it's over, say, 5%. Uh, it asks you to record a uh, video from a prompt that they then compare to the video that you recorded when you set it up uh, to make sure that it's you requesting the send transfer. So that's another level of security. So in the, the beauty of this setup, if you lose your key or seed phrase or both, maybe you have a house fire or a flood or something physically happens to you, we can work with Unchained and either you or uh, your executor in the event that you've passed in order to swap your key out or move the funds to another vault. In the event that something happens to the Bitcoin advisor, you can work with Unchained to swap our key out. Mm -hmm. And in the event that something happens to Unchained, 
we can work with you to swap their key out. So you have three-way redundancy in that. So what's the trade-off? The trade-off that you're making is that in order for you to send funds out of your vault, you either require Unchained or the Bitcoin advisor to sign that transaction with you. Yes. So okay. you can't just do it by yourself whenever you like. Now, that trade-off, we think, and our, our clients agree with us, is worthwhile because it's cold storage Bitcoin for the long term. So you are not likely to need to send Bitcoin urgently or regularly. So you don't necessarily need to contact us that often or Unchained that often. But, you know, Unchained will help you send if you know if you can't get hold of the Bitcoin advisor for whatever reason, you can work with Unchained and do your send transaction. So it's really straightforward. Um, but we think that redundancy offers a significant advantage over the inconvenience of having to ask a third party to sign your sending transaction. Now, in the event that something happens to you, uh, you get knocked over by a bus. We can work with your spouse, and you know we go into a probate process. So this is something that we've taken a number of families through over the years. That probate process, we work with the executor of your will. We get a notarized death certificate, uh, identification, and other things. We can then work with you and or your executor and Unchained to release those funds to your beneficiaries. Okay, that's great. So when it comes to the fact that let's say you've got a key. Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin advisor key, uh, Unchained has a key. And um, what prevents you from engaging with each other and conspiring against Dale to take Colluding against you. Colluding against me is the fact that we've I've got two FA. So I would have to, I would get a notification that said, hey, this transaction is going to happen. Do you approve it? And you'd be like, no. Okay, so that's, that's clear. Yeah. You're storing these keys. Now, how does one actually physically store these keys in a manner, whether it's you and unchained i'd be interested to hear because i suppose you know the, the the lowest form of security would be if you've got a excel spreadsheet with dale's uh you know private key or um yeah what what, what do you guys do from a security so we, perspective we don't know we don't know anything about your key you just treat that as any other um like you would any other single single key it's just your ledger or your treasure or your cold card uh you keep that to yourself we have no idea about your private keys whatsoever and shouldn't because it's your your key and your custody. Our key is a master key that we deploy across all of the vaults, uh, across all the clients that we have. And we have very robust protocols around that key. So there are multiple copies of that key in secure locations. There are stamped seed phrases in, on three continents. So that key is uh, super secure and resilient. And we can use that key whenever we need to, to help each client do whatever they need to do. So we do regular key checks with them. We sign uh, regular transactions with them uh, as payment for our services. Um, so that's a secure key. And then Unchained have their own key management methods for uh, for their platform. So um, they can sign when they need to sign, should they be requested to. Okay. And in terms of your your revenue model, I'm assuming it's a it's a management fee. Talk to us a little bit about how that is structured. Um, if you if you're okay to chat about that. And yeah, of course. what the what the sort of feedback has been like? Yeah, look, so you know, investors generally who uh, invest in all sorts of different products are used to management fees for those products. We work with a lot of clients with a very broad range of Bitcoin holdings, and we keep it really simple. All of our services all wrapped together, uh, we charge as one percent per annum, and we bill that on in monthly increments in satoshis. So it's a very very simple model. Whatever. Funds are under structure within the custody model. We charge 1% of those uh, funds in Satoshi's on a monthly basis. So one twelfth of 1%. 
per month. Okay. So in that instance, just because that's actually was was going to be one of my questions that how does actually one do this? So let's just for the sake of, and I'm going to say, you know, you're going to invoice me now 100,000 Satoshis. I mean, that would be a quite a, quite a low invoice, <laughs> but let's say we go ahead and do that. So then I would then have X number of days to go and actually pay that. So I'd have to go and buy Bitcoin. So you guys aren't taking fiat. You're not saying I need to slice off a piece of your Bitcoin uh, each year. You're just saying, okay, we're going to issue an invoice in Bitcoin as at, I guess, the date of invoicing. And this is the Satoshi amount and send it to this wallet address. So there's great reporting within Unchained as an example. And whatever your balance is at the end of that month, one twelfth of 1% in SATs is the fee payable. Easy, easy. Pretty, pretty transparent. And how have Bitcoiners looked at that? Because obviously with Bitcoin, we've got ourselves an asset that it, 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 there's no real storage costs. Like if I wanted to, if I had, you know, $10 million worth of gold, I would probably be on the, on the hook for some significant fees. Um, you know, we also know, right? yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I've never sort of held any gold, but yeah, I mean, I know that it is quite significant. So if it's 2%, I mean, that's, that's quite sizable. So how have you found Bitcoiners and their attitude or slash appetite for the 1% fee? And perhaps you've seen a pattern amongst Bitcoiners in terms of certain dem demographics or something like that. Yeah, I, it's a great question. And really, it comes down to you know, the level of sophistication of an investor. So young and early Bitcoiners go, what you want? How much? And what if the price goes up? That means I'm paying more. And I said, well, you still pay the same percentage in Satoshi. So if you're winning, we're winning. And if the price is dumping, well, our fees are dumping if you measure it in fiat. So um, that's why we do it in Satoshis, because we think it's a fair representation of the value of the investment. Now, established investors or older investors typically are used to paying management fees for investments like 2% for storing gold in a vault or, you know, 2.5% on a closed end fund or, or whatever it may be. So generally their perception of 1% is acceptable. Like it, it's not a, it's not a large amount. Now, the important part comes in, you know, what am I paying for? Well, you're paying for the reassurance that there's uh, redundancy in your uh, security and setup, uh, but also then the advice that we can bring to bear and uh, the guidance that we provide around estate planning uh, and the beneficiary education, which adds a lot of value and peace of mind. Now, there's a couple of kind of unintended consequences when you get these things right. So if you get the security right, people sleep better at night. Um, so the custody model, once understood, is is generally well received and they understand the benefits and the trade-offs. When you come to estate planning, there's some really interesting things that you can do, particularly you know, if uh, in your last will and testament, you can trigger a testamentary trust, uh, which is a, an activity that happens on your passing where a testamentary trust gets created and your assets move into that trust. You can then, uh, as part of the setup for that trust, you can specify how you want disbursements to occur you can uh, use it as a framework, uh, a particularly uh, clever legal framework for protecting assets to ensure that, you know, in certain circumstances, um, and, and I'll give you a, a very personal example. One of my best friends, his dad died when he was quite young uh, and he, they were quite wealthy and uh, his mum obviously inherited the, the wealth. Um, she never changed her will. She got remarried. And then unfortunately, she got cancer and passed away. And all of the family wealth went to her new husband. And none of that wealth went to Charlie and his brother. Uh, you know, that was 
a really quite catastrophic situation for, for Charlie. And certainly you could imagine something that his father would have never wanted. Mm. Um, so, you know, that scenario is completely avoidable by setting up the right kind of trust structures and will structures. Now, that's not something that most Bitcoiners or plebs tend to think about because most Bitcoiners and plebs don't come from uh, a background of wealth and therefore don't necessarily understand those legal frameworks that are available to them uh, to protect their wealth through generations uh, and to set those things up. And Pete and I often talk about this and, and Jake as well. You know, we're targeting high net worth um, investors, but we're working with all Bitcoiners. So starting from people who are just beginning to DCA all the way through to substantial Bitcoin holdings. Uh, and my view is that anyone who owns a Bitcoin at some point is going to be a high net worth individual. So you ought to have at least the education and understanding of what these frameworks are to ensure that you know, all the hard work you put into stacking sats become, uh, you know, puts it in a, a framework and a situation where you know it's going to pass to your kids. So you can do things like, you know, for example, I'm, I'm a single dad with two young kids uh, with me full time. If something were to happen to me, uh, I don't necessarily want to dump a huge amount of Bitcoin wealth in future on their shoulders for them to deal with. So you can set disbursement rules up that, for example, when they're 25 or 35 or 45, they receive a percentage of uh, the Bitcoin at that point in time. And I've specified that to only do that release at 75,000 blocks after that prior halving, because I know that will be give or take the peak of the bull run in that uh, epoch. Um, so that if they do get it and sell it, they're at least selling at the top and not at the bottom of the bear. Love now, it. that's cool shit, right? Like, that's a really interesting way of making sure that, you know, if you're not around, all your hard work isn't for nothing. And you haven't just ended up donating your coins to the network. Nothing so, could be sorry, worse. Sorry, that was a long way of answering about fees. But I think the experience and insight and um, the ability to help clients set those frameworks and structures up justifies the fee. And if it doesn't, we give all of this information out anyway, and everyone can do it themselves. And you know that's our gift to the universe. Uh, but often a lot of people don't have the time, inclination or understanding to do it. And it's, uh, it's a better investment from them to you know, pay a fee for that service. And we, we hope that you know, that adds value. And, and if people don't feel that it does, we're still happy to help them. Uh, we still don't want them to have their coins on the exchange. And we're still happy to point them in the right direction of a, a good lawyer who can help them get their get their affairs in order before before they need them to be totally yeah i think you know coming from a legal background i absolutely can resonate with the importance of proper state planning because there could be nothing worse than having a situation where the state is administering your estate i mean that for me is the nightmare because because uh, and so I've got a will that I've updated like four times. And I, only, I think I need to update it again now, now that we're talking about it, because it's it's something that's always been on my mind. And I said, I want to make sure that when I die, this is like absolutely laser clear. And when it comes to Bitcoin, given the fact that we don't actually know in the future how sophisticated people are going to be, are they going to be able to access this properly? Uh, you know, I've explained to my wife like probably like 10 times and I get this kind of glazed over look, you know, <laughs> I've kind of said, here's a key. This is what you need to do. This is where you go. And it's just like ah, too hard uh, in many instances. So I think a lot of people feel that way and it does make sense. So I think there's a, there's certainly, I, I see a very, a very strong value proposition. And also like the fact that you guys are actually, you're sort of promoting 
you know, Bitcoin's core ethos, you know, self-custody. And at the end of the day, you are dispensing this information for free. And I think that is also part of the Bitcoin ethos. I mean, you know, like I, I give my time and I really love what I'm doing, by the way. So I don't feel like it's a job or anything, but I hope that people find value in this podcast. And, uh, you know, I think you guys, you do talks and I know you, have to, with, you know, you go to the Bush Bash and you're at the, the Sydney meetup and those kind of things. So, yeah, I think, I suppose from my perspective, you know, without somebody I'm like, and I suppose you guys are perhaps biased in a sense that you're selling something in the sense that you're selling your services. I will say like, as an kind of observer, there is nothing more important than getting your shit together when it comes to your estate. Do it. Don't delay. Stop mucking around because honestly, yeah. I've actually like, I've got this weird sense that like, I've seen this over and over and over again of late where you see like, oh, life's so short this in, like this incident happened or this you know this person didn't know they had cancer and then six months later they're dead and yes you know, strange things happen in, in in life and you know for me it's always a signal like okay make sure you're enjoying your life enjoying what you're doing but also when it comes to money like what are we doing all this for like we're working our asses off for money that's you know draining in value yeah. restoring our energy in bitcoin the the last thing you could ever do is almost like just screw that part of it all up i mean it's like saying oh yeah i bought a piece of the internet in 1995 and then in 2050 oops i fucked it up i lost it and you're like are you joking and also you spend all that time in between worrying about it like what's oh. the point in stacking a ton of bitcoin for your future benefit and your children's future benefit but spending the whole time worrying about it so really like i said you know our, our key kind of goal is get everyone's coins off exchange and peace of mind um yeah, we, yes. we just want people to people to be able to sleep at night and know it's all sorted and everything's okay and you don't have to worry about it. Um, and then one of those unintended consequences I alluded to, interestingly, that we, we see with a lot of customers, once this is sorted out and you know your estate plan protocol is sorted out and your custody is sorted out and your beneficiaries, be it your spouse or your children, are somewhat educated and are much more at ease with it, it's considered tacit approval to buy more. We, we see so many customers go from a 5% to a 10% to a 20% allocation or more because all of a sudden everybody in their uh, surround is happier that it's done properly, that it, you know, it works, they understand the model. You know, I, I had a call with a customer earlier today and um, I'd onboarded him over the course of the last uh, few days and he finally managed to get some funds into an exchange and turn it into Bitcoin and move it into his vault and he said, me and the wife were high-fiving uh, and we're trying, to, <laughs> you know, we're trying to work out how much more to buy. And he said, I need to, I think we should do X. And his wife's saying, well, no, we can do 2X now because it's all okay. It's just an astonishing like sense of relief for everybody when they get this stuff nailed down. Um, it it's just, it was hilarious to me to hear, like they were, just, you could hear it in his voice. He was absolutely ecstatic. That's brilliant. Absolutely loved it. Eh? No, because we had a, you know, uh, we had a chat, um, uh you me pete and uh my wife uh, a little while ago and um i've been going on about the, the the super side of things and i'm keen to unpack that one but we similarly did a similar high five shortly after the conversation we're like Phew, let's do this boy so um let's talk about super Excellent. now because yeah like you know I, I i've got a little bit of a rant on a complaint about them because during 2020 much like you i was looking at my finances and that's how I came across Bitcoin incidentally. And I thought, okay, I've got some capital discretionary capital that can, we can put to work somewhere where we're going to stick it. It turns out, it, you know, to be Bitcoin in the end. 
And then I looked at my soup and, you know, admittedly, it was pretty pitiful given the fact I've only been here a few years, but I thought, you know, is there a way I can actually buy Bitcoin? And I looked into it and there was just no way. And I was like, all right. And there was no, there was no ETF or anything, even that was like a proxy for it. And the only way I could actually buy it was if I had bought something like uh, micro strategy shares in a self-managed super. And then there was all yep. this information about, well, actually you need about 100K or 200K to be able to even make it worth it because the fees are going to eat all your returns. And then I thought, okay, maybe I shouldn't do that. I'm too, my, my super's too small. It's a bit pitiful. So um, I then decided, okay, I want to find out what you guys are investing in. Tell me, tell me. Well, and and uh, I know you you guys spoke about HostPlus recently, uh, my my super company. And um, oh yeah, no, you, you, you have no clue what they're investing in. International uh, and shares. And the reason is because it's, it's proprietary information and it's their business model and they don't want to share that. So it's, it's not, you're not allowed to know. It's, you know, I'm sorry, that's our proprietary investment strategy and advice and everything else. But then you, you look at the performance of all of them over the last X number of years, there's not much variance between a host plus or an Australian super or anything else. Now the variance might look quite big when you zoom into the comparison between the supers, but when you put it against the chart of Bitcoin over the same period of time, uh, it's much of a muchness. Like it's about 8.8% per year for the last 10 years. So it's not dramatic outperformance. Now for most investors, that probably sounds okay. Probably doesn't when you layer in inflation over the last few years, it's actually pretty awful. But then, you know, those kind of industries are not interested in Bitcoin because it's volatile and terrorism and Ponzi and all the other nonsense uh, FUD that they normally spout. Uh, but when you literally when you layer the chart one against the other, Bitcoin in that same 10 year period is over 80 percent per year. Now, the compounding amount there is just such a dramatic difference, even with the volatility. So mm. tell me that's risky or not. It's volatile. It's not risky. Yeah. And I know that's something that uh, Pete Dunham has talked a lot about how, you know, risk and volatility are not necessarily the same thing. A lot of people, I guess, TradFi people would say that, you know, risk is almost a, or volatility is a proxy for risk. But yeah, if you actually understand Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin's actually the risk off asset, but uh, the rest of the market doesn't know it yet. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, it really blew my mind when I got to see sort of a little bit into how super, you know, the super funds actually work because, as I was saying earlier, like literally, it's like we invest in international shares. Like where emerging markets, um, where where you're investing, and what they are you investing you. in? Um, property, what kind of property? Which markets? How geared are they? And I'll include this a little bit because I know you spoke recently about it, um, particularly with uh, Host Plus and a lot of their exposure to the illiquid property on their books, which I'm assuming is commercial property. The bigger commercial property is actually quite a scam, and I don't think people are actually quite realize it in terms of the valuations right so when properties are valued they only have to be valued at the face rentals they do not have to be valued at the net effective rentals after the incentives that are offered whether it's the rent free periods or whether it's the literal incentive so the incentives in commercial property are like you'll say okay there's a 20 percent incentive to sign a new lease here in brisbane let's say for a new three-year lease that just effectively means you get to slice off 20% of the cost over the three-year lease period and you get a rent abatement. So that's your actual effective rent. That's what the landlord's getting in their bank account. But the valuation is 20% higher. So in this sense, and, and, like, and I'm in this game. And so, for example, when I'm negotiating deals, don't touch the face rent, boys, but you can play with the incentive. That's how the game works. And I'm just like, 
this is just such a scam. It's sort of like yeah. the accounting of Bitcoin. We will only count it if it goes down, not if it goes up. And so, yeah, talk to us a little bit about now the super side of things. Um, and I guess the self-managed super and yeah, how, how Bitcoin fits within that and your suite of services. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I'd say probably a good quarter to half of all of the customers we're talking to and clients we're working with are in the process of setting up a self-managed super fund or already have uh, and are wanting to get get their Bitcoin into the set of services that we have. Now, for those setting it up, you know, the process I went through, and there are a number of options, but the process I went through was uh, using a company called eSuperfund. They're a, a no advice model. They usually have a perpetual um, first year free offer. So uh, there's no fees to pay. You basically go to eSuperfund.com.au and uh, set up an account with them. They step you through the process of setting up a self-managed super fund. Uh, you have to make a decision around whether you want a corporate trustee or a personal trustee. And there's lots of information on the site as to why we recommend a corporate trustee. From there, they uh, it's a following follow the bouncing ball process. It's relatively straightforward, just a little bit laborious. But ultimately, you end up with a self-managed super fund bank account. You end up with a self-managed super trading account or exchange account uh, because the golden rule is separation of funds. You can't co-mingle your personal Bitcoin and your superannuation Bitcoin. And ultimately, once it's all set up, you can do a rollover out of funds from your traditional fund. Uh, that, those money, that money then lands in your super fund bank account. You can then obviously transfer that to your Bitcoin exchange. You can buy Bitcoin and then move it into your custody solution, uh, whether it's single SIG, multi-SIG or collaborative custody. So it's a relatively straightforward process. It's just a little bit laborious. Then with your compulsory contributions, you obviously inform your employer that you're no longer in the managed fund, that you're in your self-managed fund. So you give them the details of that. And every month you get your, or every payday, you get your uh, self-managed super or, or rather your um, compulsory contributions from your employer, you can then deploy that into Bitcoin. So I'm DCAing 12 times a year with uh, with Bitcoin. Um, one difference, you uh, in a managed fund, you pay 15% tax as soon as you get paid your super. In a self-managed fund, uh, you have to accrue that 15% and you pay it once a year when you do your tax return. Um, so that's a slight difference. Another thing that we often do, particularly for older customers, um, it's not a bad idea if they've held insurances in a managed fund for a long period of time, is to leave a relatively negligible balance in their traditional fund uh, and move the rest out to a self-managed super just to maintain those insurances. But again, anytime anyone does any of this sort of thing, everyone's circumstances are different. They really ought to consult with an expert or an accountant. Uh, and understand, do I have the right levels of insurance? Because obviously people go through different stages of life. They downsize houses, they do all sorts of things and uh, don't you know, need varying amounts of insurance to cover them for things to keep them comfortable. My personal scenario, I don't have any insurances because I consider Bitcoin my insurance. So uh, you know, I'd rather buy more Bitcoin than pay insurance premiums. And that's the risk I'm willing to take. So call me okay. crazy. All right. A couple of questions. Something that I thought about was just in terms of keeping your Bitcoin separate, uh, would it like a, a fair analogy be in terms of like if, if you had gold in your self-managed super, you couldn't go and store it in your own personal vault and mix it with all or do it at home with all your jewelry where you keep all your stuff. It, it Literally, you'd have to go to some sort of private vault, open up an account for the super and then go ahead with that. Is that? I mean, that's kind of a good sort of analog yeah. version, right? 
but well, a, a, maybe an even clearer analog version um, with a self-managed super, you can buy anything. So you could buy fine wines, you could buy art, you can buy property, you can buy all sorts of things. You just can't use it for your personal benefit whilst it's in your self-managed super. So if you buy a nice painting, you can't then go and hang it on the wall in your house. It has to be in storage as an asset to accrue in value or you know perform as a store of value for you. If you buy a property, it's in the name of your super. You can't live in the property. Now, the only uh, exclusion to that is if it's a farm and it's a working farm and uh, it, that, that's, you know, that works that way. So but same for fine wines. You can't invest in a fine wine collection as an investment and then start drinking the wine. It's, a, it's an investment for your self-managed super. It would need to be in storage somewhere else and um, you know, everything else. So it, it's just a separation. So that, you know, the basic rule is uh, you can't benefit personally from anything that's in your self-managed super it is there for an investment and that purpose only yes okay yeah that makes sense and i don't know if you've had had this thought at all but again i'm a i'm a bit of a bitcoin psychopath so the adversarial thinking is off the charts and i've thought about this as a potential all these bitcoiners are, are essentially dumping their their existing supers because they realize it's just absolute bs and the the returns are shit and there's no transparency and just there's like a million reasons and why not just do it yourself? And then the government's going to go like, well, actually, we don't have access to that, those monies. Yes, we can ask them each year, you know, do you still have them? They can go, yeah, yeah, no, you know, or not, um, you know, they'll, they'll be penalized. If they, yeah, you can say, oh, you know, I lost some or whatever. Um, but I can just imagine a huge amount of scrutiny. You can say, oh, chain analysis, we tracked you. I can imagine governments because they can just print more money and they've got probably like, you know, they'll never shrink. So they'll only, they'll get more and more bureaucrats on the, on the payroll just to kind of, okay, now that's my job. I've got to go and look for naughty Bitcoiners who might be spending their self-managed super. So then there's going to be a rule. They'll say, Hey, you know what you need, you guys all need to sell it. And then you can buy this ETF. It's really, it's liquid. And, um, and then effectively you can't go with, your wealth. If you wanted to pack up, you know, like I can't take my super with me if I've invested in, you know, MicroStrategy shares, for example, can't just sell, take it in the bank account and bugger off. Uh, whereas with Bitcoin, you could just sort of quietly disappear. And the chances of actually, you know, being found for a while would probably be quite low. So I've thought about that as an option. I don't know if that's something you guys have thought about as being like a, a possibility. Yeah, it, it, it's a very regular thing thread of thinking and we kind of discuss it uh, a lot and kind of game out what could and couldn't happen and take a step back for a second the the pool of superannuation funds in australia currently is worth about 3.5 trillion dollars that represents about 140 percent of gdp so it is not insignificant and that's in 2023 they predict uh, or extrapolate that by 2040 the pool of funds will be around 10.5 trillion dollars or knocking on for about 190% of GDP. It is my assumption that the government looks at that and goes, we're having some and we want as much of it as we can get because we're bankrupt now. We're going to be more bankrupt later for all the reasons you, you just mentioned. And no government anywhere could resist staring at a $10.5 trillion or even $3.5 trillion pool of money and go, well, we need some of that to help run the constant expansion of our existence. Well, that is likely. Now, for me as a Bitcoiner, am I more comfortable if my 
slice of that, my small slice of that $3.5 trillion, am I more comfortable if it's sitting with a financial services institution where that, those funds are co-optable in short order? Or am I more comfortable if my slice of that $3.5 trillion is sitting in self-custody Bitcoin under my control? The one guarantee in life is they are going to move the goalposts. They are constantly moving the goalposts. So the retire, like you said at the start, the retirement age is now 67. Well, what's to stop them in a few years moving it to 70 and then 72 and then 75? And then before we know it, the retirement age will be one year before the average life expectancy of a, an Australian male. So you'll be lucky if you get a year to spend your pension. None but of that is forced to contribute to. You didn't even have a choice. Exactly. And so, you know, it's very hard to understand what's going on. Like earlier on in the year, there's obviously lots of talk around tax uh, incentives being removed on any income on superannuation above a balance of $3 million as one thing. They also at the same time talked about taxing unrealized gains, which is frankly bananas. It's very hard to plan for stuff that isn't current legislation. It's all speculative. So, for example, the tax, you know, losing tax incentives on any earnings on anything over $3 million in balance, well, Bitcoin's not yield generating. So they really haven't thought that through very well. Um, it's all about capital appreciation. So you know, there are all sorts of implications to that when you retire and the transfer balance cap of whatever it is when we retire, it might be two and a half, three million, five million, whatever it might be. So they really haven't thought that part through. And the unre unrealized taxing unrealized gains is crazy because Bitcoin's highly volatile. So maybe they tax you on unrealized gains in a bull market where the price jumps, you know, a factor of two or three. Um, but at the same time, if the next year it drops back 60, 70, 80 percent, are they going to do refunds on unrealized losses? Like it's... this could work out really beneficially for Bitcoiners because you could play that play that bet that market and pay very little tax and accrue huge gains if you time it all correctly. So it's really hard to predict what's going to happen. Um, I think everybody is right to uh, game out as many attack vectors as they possibly can. But the one kind of final thought I have on that is I would much rather have self-custody Bitcoin in my go bag and a me-shaped hole in the door if they really screw with the regulations and see you later. Like I'm moving to El Salvador or buying a yacht or doing whatever uh, with the huge amount of Bitcoin I've hopefully got by that point in time. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. I think the unre unrealized gains thing is the most hilarious and it's only uh, a sort of a notion that is discussed in socialist countries typically because um, it, it just is so unworkable and stupid i mean so many people who are wealthy don't like will have far more they don't necessarily have enough liquid capital like liquid capital to be able to even pay that so it's like how do you like imagine i'm all in on bitcoin and i'm sort of taking off little slices to to pay my bills you know and you go oh yeah your balance is 10 more you got to pay whatever percent you go like well you say now i have to sell the asset itself to pay for the gains that i didn't wouldn't have enjoyed but for now, your rule, it's just, yeah, but it I makes think, no sense. but I think you're right. Like you can kind of go down, you can go down this whole path of gaming all the different situations, but ultimately you say, how can I have the most possible control over my future? And I think a self-managed super fund is, is the first step. And then what is the ultimate way of, you know, securing your future? I think it's Bitcoin. Everything else will still be subject to the same rules and regulations that apply today to existing supers. Or be it, you'll be able to at least pick what you want to invest in, which I think is still good. I mean, if you wanted to go and drink your fucking wine, go and drink your wine, <laughs> whatever it is. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. that's so that's fine. There was a great Twitter comment the other day. I think 
Farmer Jen made it and she was talking about the banking system and how it's a three of three multi-sig between you, the government uh, and the bank. And I went, actually, no, it's a two of two because the bank decides whether you get your money out or not, which is well documented recently. Yeah. Um, you, you don't have any say in this whatsoever. You can make a request, but they can deny it uh, and not give you the money that's sitting in your bank account. So to the point, you know, I think the ultimate freedom and the whole reason we're into Bitcoin is because it's my money under my control in a self-custody situation. If I need to go, I can go and I can take my money with me because it's everywhere and nowhere all at the same time. Yeah. And even if in the worst case scenario, you had a situation where you had uh, somebody who had a super and the Bitcoin advisor had a key, Unchained Capital had a key, and they had a key. And the government goes to you guys and says, Oi, you know, give us all your clients' details and do all the stuff. And you'll be like, Okay, you have to do, you have to do what you got to do, right? But you can't do anything about it. It's still out, it's still in our control. And so th- I think that's that's the beauty of kind of the setup that you've got going there is that even under compulsion, there's nothing you can actually do. Whereas if you had a bank or no. you know, some other situation, I'm pretty sure they'd kind of just cough and give you give up every single thing about you. They yeah. did in Canada, right? Like they blocked, they turned people's accounts off. It's, yeah, it's it's very surprising. I mean, there's, the nature of Bitcoin is such that every attempt at trying to squash it, control it, block it, undermine it, only makes it makes grow it stronger. stronger. And it's an advertisement for it in the first place, particularly when governments are the ones screaming and shouting about how it's wrong. It's bad for the environment. It does this. It does that. It's just so. It's becoming Until so. BlackRock tells them to change the narrative, and all of a sudden, it's a net positive for the environment and everything else. Like you know, BlackRock have determined that you know everything's okay now, so we're all good to go. Exactly. The current thing is Bitcoin is okay, and we'll just go with the current thing. And like, I'm actually happy with the current thing. If BlackRock's on board with it, you know, obviously. We, I don't think we're going to go down that rabbit hole in terms of what the potential implications are. I think the beauty is that us lowly plebs and serfs who are the last in the pecking order and the people who are least considered have been front running all of these rent seekers. Love it. <laughs> Love it. It's uh, it's breathtaking. And I think um, you know there is potential for some explosive price action when that finally happens. BlackRock is not the kind of organization that's going to throw its hat in the ring and be embarrassed. They might even have some sort of circus around. No, no, no. It doesn't quite tick the boxes yet, but come again, just to have the appearance of going through some sort of due process. But there's no ways Larry Fink can get on the on the blower to Gary Gensler and say, listen, boy, what do we need to do to get this thing through? You tell me. Yeah. And we've seen that process in action, right? They said, well, you need to name your exchange of, or your custody of choice and everything else. So now Coinbase all of a sudden is the custodian of choice for all the ETF applications. Um, yeah. But like you say, they, they don't roll out Larry Fink for him to be embarrassed. They roll him out to make it happen. But he made some interesting statements when he was on, I think it was CNBC or having the initial interview a week or two ago. That, no, this is going to democratize uh, Bitcoin um, and make it available to everybody. Clearly, still lacking in understanding that Bitcoin is already democratized and already available to everybody, and everybody can buy as little Bitcoin as they can afford wherever they are in the world. And what he's not, what he's doing is not democratizing Bitcoin. What he's doing is opening the gates to institutional purchasing. 
Um, yeah. that, that's the thing that they're doing and that's why they're doing it because they can see an upside to it. And particularly this year when we're up over 80% year to date, no other assets done that. My superannuation fund is up over 80% remarkably. No other superannuation fund in the country is. Just beat um, mine. There's no way that, yeah, there's no way that the biggest asset managers in the world are looking at that going, well, we fucked that up. Yeah. Exactly. And I think, uh, you know, it's 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 all but inevitable that all the pension funds around the world, the sovereign wealth funds, they're all going to get a little piece of the action and everyone gets the price they deserve. And it makes all the sense in the world to have even just a small allocation, 1%, 2%, whatever it is. You can look at it as Greg Foss would describe some sort of credit default swap against uh, fiat currency collapse. There's so many different ways you can look at it. But you know, it's just, it's the asymmetric opportunity uh, of, of a lifetime of our generation. And I can't see that institutions are going to, going to let this one slip. I think they're just, they've been waiting for the right vehicle and they basically, they want the go ahead. They want the green lights and the career risk of being the first mover is going to be removed. Uh, we saw with some Canadian it, pension. It's funds. now replaced with a career risk of not being involved. Yes, Exactly. Because I don't know if you recall, there were some Canadian pension funds which had invested, they had some sort of private equity investments in crypto stuff. I think like, and it went belly up. And I was like going, that's people's future. Like you people were just a bunch of idiots. Like you did no work. But now I think you'll find with BlackRock, I think you'll see like, yeah, it's going to be pretty obvious um, that there's no second best. It's Bitcoin. Absolutely. Andy, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, it's, it's gone a little bit longer than I usually do, but there was a lot to unpack and I really enjoy chatting. Um, I'd like to give you an opportunity now just to talk. Yeah, tell us where we can find you, um, your website, the Bitcoin Super, yourself and the business, and, uh, and then we can pack it up. Sure. Um, so I'm on Twitter, uh, shitposting regularly, and that's Andy BTC Advisor. So pretty straightforward. And then the two websites, bitcoinsuper.io uh, is the kind of free resource around self-managed super and Bitcoin. And then the bitcoinadvisor.com is primary site, and that's all linked from my Twitter as well. So Brilliant. Okay, awesome. Love what you boys are doing. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm eagerly watching how things unfold in the next while. Thanks. Really enjoyed this. It was great fun. Awesome. All right. Take care. Thanks, Dave. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and that you got some value out of it. Either way, hit me up on Twitter and let me know what you think. My handle is Dale21M. If you've got any suggestions as to people you think I should be talking to or topics I should address to, I would love that sort of feedback. Otherwise, if you want to support the show, there's a couple different ways you can do that. The first is just to share it amongst your friends and family. The more that people hear the message that Bitcoin and crypto are not the same thing, the better. And I want to help people understand that. The second thing you can do is give me a five-star review on whichever podcast app you're using. Of course, that's only if I deserve it. And last but not least, if you want to stream Satsmoe via the Fountain app, I'm not going to say no, but it's not expected. Thank you so much for your support thus far. It means the world to me. I appreciate the hell out of you and the best is yet to come. Much love, friends. I'll see you on the other side.